All right, so we'll pick up with verse 21 of Mark 15. Uh, they yesterday ended with um, Jesus being mocked and beaten on the head, and they led him out to crucify him. So he's at this point carrying the cross to uh, the place where he's going to be crucified. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander, and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, when they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And then they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elohoi, Elohoi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filling a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah can take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who had stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph fought, brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, was, saw where he was laid. And that is our passage for the day. Uh, there's a lot we could talk about, obviously. Uh, one, it's a, we just read you know, 45 verses, or 25 verses. Um, but there's a lot going on in the crucifixion and the burial. Uh, I want to I point out a couple of things that I was just thinking about this morning as I read it. And I, I don't think we've talked about this, but maybe we have. Um, so the sort of the geography of the city and the... Um, uh, like where these different places and these different things are happening are somewhat important to like some prophetic images that were given um, several hundred years ago for some of the things that were happening. Um, and so there are, there are places that are mentioned that we probably don't see what it is that they're seeing um, or like what specifically I think um, Peter is trying to get across as he's talking to Mark. 
Um, yeah, so right outside Jerusalem, uh, not, not far from the temple, but right outside Jerusalem, there's a rock quarry. Uh, and the way that, um, you know, quarries work is that you like, you're constantly chiseling into things and you're trying to find um, essentially like large blocks of perfect stone. And one of the, one of the prophetic um, things that was given about the coming Messiah um, was that he would be um, the rock the builders rejected would become the capstone. I don't know if you remember that. Peter talks about that in Acts chapter 2. Um, you were the builders talking to like all of the Jews um, and specifically the leaders. You were the builders who rejected um, this cornerstone and it's going to become the capstone. Um, and so the way that building would work is that they would find a, they would find a perfect stone, um, as perfect as they could find. There would be no fissures, there would be no cracks, and it would be enormous. And then they would split that stone perfectly in two. Um, and they would take the, uh, the cornerstone and they would put it at the very bottom of the foundation of, at the corner, hence cornerstone. Um, and so at the bottom of the foundation of the temple, there is a cornerstone um, that is a perfect rock. Um, and then they would trace it all the way to the top, and it would be perfectly placed, what would be called the capstone, which is the other half of it. Um, and what they would do with rocks that had fissures and cracks in it is that the people who were mining these quarries, there would be an overseer who was called the builder. And that builder would be examining these stones and making the decision as to which one was rejected and which one wasn't. Does that make sense? Um, and so Jesus clearly, like what's happening um, here is there's a double entendre, um, meaning that this cornerstone and capstone has multiple meanings, specifically two, hence double entendre. Um, the, easy, the easy view of it is this, um, like, look, Jesus is the beginning and he's the end. So he's the cornerstone and he is the capstone. He's the beginning of the foundation and he's the finality of the foundation. And you, the religious leaders, have decided to reject him. Um, and so like we think of all that the temple represents, um, that this is very, very clearly in the prophetic picture talking about the temple um, and this, this uh, the messianic figure and how he relates to the temple. Um, and you've rejected him. So there's that. But then there's like some really specific geographic implications about this prophetic image. Um, the place of the skull, Golgotha, where Jesus was actually taken, um, was that rock quarry. Um, and the reason it was called the skull was because when you quarry, you dig in. And the way, like they, they finally, like, like many quarries, you finally get to a point where you're like, hey, there's nothing left really to mine out. Like there's no rocks that are left to get out of this place that are worth building with. And so they've left the quarry and it has become this place of execution. But when you get away from the quarry, it looks like a skull. And so that's, that's how it gets the nickname. It's the skull. The thing that they do underneath that, oftentimes in these quarries, if they were big enough, is that this would be a place where very, very wealthy people would, would be buried. Most people are just like dug um, there would be like unmarked graves or there would just be a mass grave um, where they would just bring people. I mean, like very unceremonially and you would be, you would be buried there. Very wealthy people would be buried in stone places. Um, we see this today still. Like you can 
go into the cemetery that is beyond us, and you can see where there are like very, very large stone edifices that have been built and rooms that are going to be built for people who have lots of money, who want there to be like a, a large marker of their existence here on this planet. It is not different 2,000 years ago. And so Joseph of Arimathea is someone who has that, and he is literally being buried right underneath where he was crucified, which is just interesting. But here's, here's where it gets, I think, particularly interesting. Here Jesus is like being crucified on the place that is at this point, all that's left is a reject, a rejected stones. Um, and as he dies, the place where that perfect stone lies, which is the cornerstone of the foundation of the temple and the capstone of the temple is torn into the curtain that is there that separates like the Holy of Holies and the rest of the world like is torn right into um, and what Jesus essentially does is he makes a thing that is, that is unholy, a place of execution, and he makes it holy. And he makes something that was holy, and he makes it, at this point, like now, pretty unholy. You have, like, the temple is meant to be perfect. It's, it's been torn in two, at least a large piece of it, the thing that would separate the holy of holies and the holiest place. Does that make sense? And so when we talk about, like, the stone that the builder has rejected— has become, like, it's talking about Jesus, but in a very, very different way. Like, he's literally on the stones that the builders rejected geographically. He is also the stone that a new temple is being built out of. And specifically, like, there are a couple of different ways. Like, for Peter, rocks have always been his, like, dominant metaphor. I don't know if you've had this experience, but oftentimes um, something will happen in your faith journey that it's a very specific metaphor or picture that the Lord gives you. And it like, you just take it with you for the rest of your life and you just keep adding meaning to it as you go along. For Jesus, I mean, excuse me, for Peter, it was always about rocks. And so you think in, in Mark chapter, I can't remember, I think it's Mark 13. It may not be Mark 13, maybe Mark 10. But it's definitely Matthew 16. <laughs> um, is where Jesus and Peter and the disciples are in retreat in Caesarea Philippi. And that's where Peter um, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, like, you are the rock on which I will build this church. And so for Jesus, for Peter, what? And? Mark 8. Thank you. Aaron says it's Mark 8. We're going to take your word for it. Um, what, what you eventually see is, like, this becomes this dominant metaphor in Peter's life, which you can trace in this passage he brings it in his very first sermon ever in Acts chapter 2, where he's talking about the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. But as he gets older, when he's writing in his old age, like in prison, to a group of people, um, this, it's like a general letter, he's talking about, like, it's not just me who is the stone. You also, like living stones, are being built into a temple. Like, and so there's this, you are the temple, like your body, like, as Paul says, but also, like, we collectively, the church, the dominant metaphor being, like, we all somehow represent Jesus, who is the perfect temple. Um, and so the, the stone metaphor is, like, a really big one for Peter. We could just keep going on this particular one, but we won't. Um, but the thing that I was thinking about this morning just personally um, is Jesus' ability to take something that has been left for dead, that has been, has been said is no longer of any use, and flip the whole thing upside down. So he was able to take a place called the skull, 
because it had been left. Um, and all that was left was a, a picture of death. Uh, but the, there are no more stones that are worth quarrying. There's nothing left to mine. Um, and he gives it this place of meaning. Um, and he is able to bring life to this place of death in the same way that he was able to bring life to our place of death. Um, and so this, I mean, this goes deep for us in the sense that we are people who have been brought from death to life. We, we talked about a month ago about how Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to bring dead people to life. So we have been people who have been touched by what it is that happened. Um, but also recognizing like the whole of the gospel is that it's not just about individuals. It's about everything. And so the whole of the earth is dying. Like, and so all of creation is groaning, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed because there's this recognition that death has visited the earth and it is slowly dying and exhausting itself. And I'm not saying this because of environmental concerns, to be clear. Um, and what ultimately needs to happen is the power of the resurrection needs to visit all of creation. It needs to visit all systems. It needs to visit all kingdoms. It needs to visit all societies, all structures, all everything. Um, because death has visited all of those things. If for no other reason than the way that human beings function is that we bring death with us. And so whenever we get together, um, it's not just that I, the individual, need saving. Um, it's not that I whom bring death, needs a life visited upon me. But when we get together, we form systems of death and systems of injustice. That's what we do. And so the story of the Bible is ultimately one where when given the opportunity to pick poorly, we always do. And we always just reorganize and build systems of inequality, injustice, and death. That's just what we do because we are sinful people. When sinful people collect, they create sinful systems of injustice. And so it's it's not just that me, the individual, though it is me, the individual, has been visited by life because of Jesus, because of this moment and the ability for Jesus to flip things upside down. Jesus is in the process, according to Colossians 1, of flipping everything upside down. So everything will be put back together. So hopefully that is good news for us today. Um, just, just the, I mean, specifically for me, um, oftentimes I think it's easier for me to think about like, we're part of this giant movement and everything is changing and we want to change the world and da da da. Um, but specifically for me, just spending some time this morning reflecting on like where I was when Jesus found me um, was like, it was bad. Like it really, really, like I often joke with Elizabeth um, that one of the great, one of the great, uh, not privileges, but like one of the greatest gifts the Lord gave me is that she never met me before I met Jesus because she would never have picked me. Like, I, I just destroyed everything that I touched. Um, it was a real gift. And destroyed every relationship. Destroy, I mean, every choice I made brought death with it. It was pretty bad. Um, and then I met Jesus, and everything changed. Not because of anything that I did, but because of everything that he has done. And that's what he can do, and that's what he continues to do, and that's what we're going to pray that he will continue to do um, this weekend as we go on retreat, that he will bring life to places that are dead, um, and for the rest of the summer as we are, at least at this table, we're spending the summer together. Um, obviously, the staff is here for longer, but even with you guys, Bethany and Randy, who are here. So that's our prayer today.